Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And we are going to continue our journey through the theme of spiritual warfare. So Ephesians chapter 6. And if you can, would you stand, please? Let's read verses 10 through 13. Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, we constantly pray, not because it's a tradition, but it's because we need to pray. We recognize the prayer is a means that you have appointed for us to be empowered and to enjoy fellowship with you. So that's why we pray, constantly pray in this church, because we know how needy we are, how dependent we are. And right now we pray that your Holy Spirit be working in us. Help me to be faithful. Help this wonderful congregation to be faithful as they're listening. We need you. We need your power. The Lord Jesus told us that there are satanic birds trying to snatch the seed. So we pray that you'd remove these birds out of here. Let your word bear fruit in our lives. We pray for other churches here in Dallas and in Salem area. Bless your people, Lord. Help your congregation, your flock to be strengthened today and to be light in this dark place. Be with our brothers and sisters all over the world. Pray for Christians in Kenya, Nigeria, in China, North Korea, in Europe. Bless our brothers and sisters, Lord. And those who are in prison, help us to pray for them and And be as if we were in chains with them, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the most basic things in in war is, one of the most important tactics and strategies is to know your enemy. You know your enemy. You need to know, and that's not only in military context, but especially in sports if you know anything about sports, you know how often when you're competing against a team, people will be watching, will be learning about your opponent. That's just ABCs. Uh, if you guys have ever seen Cinderella Man, that movie about James Maddock, the, the boxer, you know that there's a part in that movie when they show the scene of his coming opponent. And, 
And they are trying to create fear on him by making James better watch them fight of Max Bear where he kills the other man. And you remember the, the Cinderella man? He's watching and paying attention to what's happening. And remember, he asks to repeat the same scene again. Why? Because he's watching the tactic, the strategy of his opponent. And he will use that same tactic and strategy to defeat his opponent. And that's just part of battles. In war, the knowledge of the opponent helps an army to be ready for the enemy's strengths and weakness. One author notes how the U.S. failed in the Vietnam and Somalia wars because of the lack of knowledge about the enemy. So this author was a paper for the National Defense University of National War College. It says, at the national, at, at the national strategy, in the case of Vietnam, we understood neither the national will of the enemy nor what would be required to compel him to do our will. We have been seeing that also similar is the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, lack of knowledge of the opponent's power and resources and strength, how that can be vital in a war. So, what is true in the natural world is also true in the spiritual world. The, scriptures gives, the Scripture gives us enough and sufficient information about our enemy for us to know who they are and how to fight against them. So F.F. Bruce, he writes, to be forewarned about the nature of Satan's schemes is to be forearmed against them. So a key aspect in warfare is to know the source, the source of your power, where is your power coming from, and also the source of your enemy's power and the source of his schemes. And that's exactly what Paul is giving us in Ephesians chapter 6. So today we're going to start looking at verses 10 through 12, and we're going to look at the source of our power, and then the source of our armor, and then the source of our battles. So the source of our power, verse 10, the source of our armor, verse 11a, and then the source of our battles, 11b through 12. Just remind you, as two Sundays ago is when we started the topic of warfare, uh, that we need a biblical understanding of warfare. We cannot fall into the two extremes, and you remember there are two extremes in the church. One extreme is just to overemphasize warfare. So everything's about Satanic power, suddenly they are putting Satan with greater power than God himself. Everything is about spiritual warfare. And that's a super emphasis that's not in the Bible. And the other extreme, especially among Reformed churches, to de-emphasize and ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. And we cannot fall into either, both extremes. Amen? Uh, another important aspect of spiritual warfare is the from the moment we are saved, from the moment we are saved, there is a transfer in war. We are no longer in war against the holy God, but actually now we are in war against the kingdom of darkness. So that's very important because some people say, I, I don't like this topic of war, I don't like the topic of battles. Too bad. <laughs> 
The Christian life, we're going to see that the, the, the Scriptures is a book about war, battles. And that's just part of our lives. And, and if you don't want to experience battles, just live a mediocre, lukewarm life, a horrible life. You'll be thrown up by Jesus, and you certainly will not in this life experience much spiritual warfare. But if we as a church, as Christians, want to glorify the Lord, the more we strive to walk in holiness as a church, the more we prioritize the Word of God, the more we keep pursuing the unity that Jesus bought for this church, the more we keep Practicing church discipline, guess what? The more we will experience warfare and battles. Amen? So we must pay very close attention to what Paul is telling us. So Ephesians chapter 6, and just a word about the book of Ephesians, and that's important for you to understand how Paul is developing here, is that the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 from verse 3 until chapter 6, verse 20, that's the body of the letter. So you think about uh, in ancient times when you were studying Philippians, I talked to you about there is the greetings, there is the salutation, there is the body of the letter, and then usually you have the final greetings. That's how letters were structured. So Ephesians, you have, let's put chapters 1 through 3, that, that would be chapter 1, verse, th- verse 3 to chapter 3 until the end of chapter 3. You you have one part of this body. So the body of the letter, that's chapter 1, 3 to chapter 6, 20. You can see in your Bibles. It's the main body, and this main body is divided in two parts. So you can say that chapters 1 through 3, that would be orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? The right teaching, the right doctrine. And then chapters 4 through 6 would be orthopraxy. What is orthopraxy? The right practice. So you're putting to practice the right doctrine. Or you can put doctrine and duty. Chapters 1 through 3, doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, duty. Okay? That, that's how it's divided this beautiful ladder. And we see in, in the first three chapters all the glorious doctrines about salvation. You can just see in the, in, in the first chapter, starting verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, chapters 1 through 3 is all about the glory of salvation. The marvelous work of the triune God in saving us. And look at chapter 2, verse 6. Talking about, and even when, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, Paul says that we are already in the heavenly places seated with Christ Jesus on His throne. Amen? That's beautiful. Glorious truth. From the depths of hell now to the throne with Christ in the heavenly places. But then, what is interesting, so we have all these glorious truths of the who we are in Christ Jesus. We are loved. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are saved. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. 
But then you come to chapter 4, and Paul starts developing something that you'd not expect. He starts commanding us to do certain things. To walk in holiness. To put to death sin. To preserve the unity that Jesus bought for His church. So, from chapter 4 onward, we see that we still are in this fallen world, and we still have to fight some enemies as we are waiting the consummation of all things. Therefore, though the war with Satan and sin has been conquered by Jesus, we still have battles to fight until the consummation. That's why the metaphor, the analogy of the... Do you remember I talked about that before? You think about D-Day and the V-E Day. D-Day, that's when the war was declared won. We won this war. But until victory in Europe, 11 months took place until the final, the consummation of the, the victory of the war. And in between that time, there were many casualties, deaths. But the victory was certain. And that's what we see in our Christian life. There is the already. We are already more than conquerors. But until the consummation, we've got to keep fighting, battling. Amen? I like what Frank Thielman writes. He says, Although the triumph of Christ over the hostile or the hostile heavenly powers and the share of the church in that triumph are so certain that Paul can speak of them both in the past tense, they are not yet complete. The days are still evil and shrouded in darkness. The devil, unwilling to surrender in the face of certain defeat, continues to fire flaming arrows at the church and, along with his supporting cosmic forces, to engage the church in a spiritual struggle. So that's very important for us to understand this eschatology, where we are in salvation history in order to understand the reality of spiritual warfare. Okay? That's crucial. So Paul ends this glorious letter with a reminder that although the victory is ours, we still have an enemy to fight. And this enemy is not only within. Paul talks about us fighting the enemy within, but we also have an enemy where? Out. Outside us. And that's what Paul is telling us. And I will talk more about that, but the Christians in Ephesus, they were very aware of spiritual warfare, spirituality. The city of Ephesus is well known for being a center of all sorts of evil spirits and adoration and worship of cosmic powers. Artemis or Diana was the major goddess of that city, and she was believed to be the goddess of supreme cosmic power. And that's why Paul will talk about these things in, in this section here. In Acts 19, in the book of Acts chapter 19, we see a major spiritual upheaval in, in Ephesus after Paul preached the gospel in that area. So, they were very aware of the realities of spiritual warfare. So, let's go to, let's, we need to move on here. So, Let's see the source of our power. And we walked through verse 10 before, so I'm going to move really quickly here. So just, you can see finally, and this finally here is Paul. Well then, brothers. He's just now kind of transitioning, and in a way, he's pretty much bringing the whole letter to an end. 
He's bringing the whole letter to an end, and he's teaching together all the previous teaching in this final section of spiritual warfare. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Paul is recap recapitulating everything that he talked about before in a very condensed way. So you can see how much of the vocabulary that's in chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, was used earlier in the letter. And that's what Paul is doing. He's now bringing all the doctrines, all the teachings that he used earlier, now to a summary, and a very practical summary. So, I don't have time to go through here, but you can see that this is not a, a random part of the letter. So some people say that the letter to the Ephesians have two different authors, and one author, who knows, maybe that was Paul, and then we don't know who the second author is, but no, you can see the coherence, the unity of this letter. It's beautiful. So Paul says, be empowered, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength and the power of His might. And you remember that the verb is in the what? Passive. Yes, it's in the passive voice. And the mood, an imperative it's a passive and imperative, and that's very important. The passive is important because it reminds us that it's not something that we can do. It's something that the Lord does for us. Amen? That's crucial. The passive is crucial. It's done on our behalf. And the imperative reminds us that there is no passivity here. We've got to keep pursuing, going after the Lord, so He will strengthen us. That's very beautiful, very important. Similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 12 through 13, when Paul says, Work out, or fight, fight, go to battle. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the, the, our part. And then you remember the passive part. For it's God who battles within you. He's the one who's strengthening you, empowering you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And he says, in Ephesians 6, he says, finally, be empowered where? In a denomination? In your bank account? Be empowered in the Lord. In the Lord. And that's crucial because you remember how Paul, for Paul, the major way to describe a Christian is to describe this person in relation to his union with Christ. So Paul is always dividing humanity in, in Adam, in Christ. In Adam, the old humanity, in Christ, the new humanity. And that's what he's saying here. Be strengthened, be empowered in the Lord, in your communion with the Lord. And also, you think about the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the, the heart of the warfare for, for the people of God under the Old Covenant, every time they went to battle, what did they have to bring with them? The ark, the ark that represented God. So they would bring the ark because there was a representation that God was among them. But you see, with the new covenant and the Spirit of Christ coming and uniting us with the Lord, now we are in Him and He is in us. He's fighting within us, for us. And Paul says, be strengthened, be empowered 
in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And I talked to you about that. I'm not going to spend the time here. But how in Ephesians, the strength of His might or His mighty power is the resurrection power. That's the power of His resurrection. And remember, the resurrection is the key for the victory of Christ. How did Christ conquer everything? By His resurrection. And that's the power that He's imparting upon His people. So that's the source of our power. Let's move to the source of our, our, our armor. And Paul says in verse 11, here's another imperative. Put on. Put on the whole armor of God. So he follows the command to be empowered by another imperative to put on the armor. And the construction in the, in the Greek is the idea that for us to be empowered in the Lord will be by us dressing ourselves and putting on what? The armor, the armor of God. Paul loves this language of putting on and putting off. Also, is one of his favorite ways of describing the Christian life is to put off, put on. So, for example, we see in Galatians 3.27, he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Or Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self. Or Colossians 3.12, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is a metaphor for very specific qualities that we have now in Christ Jesus, that we must dress ourselves up every single day. We must put off the old man, that's the, the life that was connected to Adam, and we need to put on the new man that is the life with Jesus. So to put on or to dress ourselves is to think and to live in a way that reflects our uni union and unity with Christ Jesus, the new Adam. Okay, that's why Paul keeps using this beautiful metaphor and so beautifully used also in baptism where they would remove the old garments, go and then receive new garments once they would come out of the waters. Uh, and this continuous this continuous Putting off and putting on can only be understood, as we said, about the already but not yet. We are ready. We are ready clothed with Jesus. Amen? Christ is ours. We have been clothed with His righteousness. But still, we have not yet been glorified. Therefore, every day, every morning, we need to dress ourselves with Christ once again. Put on Christ. So, I like what one scholar says. He says, in Paul's theology, the Christian's clothing is Christ and the effects of union with Christ. Paul teaches that all Christians have already put on Christ and that they have already been united to Christ and have experienced a, deci a decisive break with their old lifestyle. On the basis of union with Christ, Christians are to continue living in new, new ways which is referred to as putting on the new man or various virtues that we have in Christ Jesus. So, for example, in Ephesians 4, 4.24, Paul used the same verb here, to put on. So in Ephesians 4.24, Paul exhorted those Christians to put on the new man that they are in Christ in order to walk in a life that's worthy, that's in accordance with the gospel. So think about it. In chapter 4, he talks about them putting on the new man, to put on Christ so they can walk. And now he tells them to put on the armor of God in order for them to stand against the enemy's schemes. And he calls the whole armor. He puts the whole armor 
The Greek word panoplia refers to the complete equipment of a heavy armed soldier. The full armor, all the elements, protected from head to foot. It's not like you can separate pieces of this armor. No, this whole armor is complete. You cannot just put the, the helmet and forget about the shield or the shoes. No, this whole armor is one package. That's very important. Uh, there is a parallel passage that helps us understand what Paul is teaching us, and that's in Romans chapter 13. And you can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. And I think we can see what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 6. Because look how Paul says, The night's far gone, the day's at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. God is light. That's the armor of God. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but what? Huh. So if you think about that, it's a parallel. To put on the armor of light or the armor of God is to put on what? To put on whom? Jesus Christ. Yes, exactly. So to be... To put on the armor is to be dressed up with Christ Jesus. It's to be clothed with Jesus. And that's our union with Him, our communion with Him. That's how we dress up, especially as a body, as a church. We are clothed with Christ as, just like we are doing right now. Through the singing, the prayer, the fellowship, hearing His voice speaking to us. That's how we, as a church, put on the whole armor of God. By union and communion with God. So, I'll talk more about that when you come to verse 13. But you think about the belt of truth. Jesus is the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. The shield of faith. Jesus is the faithful one. He is the source of our faith. The helmet of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. Talk about preaching the gospel of peace. Jesus, in Ephesians 2, is the preacher of peace. So, we see that to put on the armor of God is to put on whom? Jesus Christ. Yes. So forget about techniques of how to put one piece and put another piece. I have seen people teaching all sorts of crazy things about the armor of God. Different techniques to how to put the helmet of salvation, this, the sword or the shield. No, it's one. It's the person of Christ that we as a church need to be dressed up with to fight the enemy. That's what Paul is teaching us. And you see that the source, he talks about the source, put on the armor of God that belongs to God, and that's very important. Only God and God's armor can provide a suitable defense for the believers. You have the genitive thereof. For me, it's a genitive of source and origin. The armor originates with God. It is used by God, and it's the armor given by God. That's very important. I asked the kids last night, do you think this armor is the armor that God uses? They're like, no. But actually, that's the armor that God uses. So, for example, in Isaiah, you hear that the Messiah will come to save His people and He will be dressed with an armor. And the elements of this armor are the same that Paul mentions here. And we'll talk more about that later. 
but it's coming out of the Old Testament. That's the armor that God Himself wears, belongs to God, and He's giving to His people. So our, our armor belongs to God. Our armor is Jesus Christ Himself, the greatest gift that the Father has given us. Amen? Let's move on. I need to move on. I have things to cover here. Uh, verses 11b through 12, the source of our battles. The source of our battles. So Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? Why? Yes, that, that you may be able to stand. The word able there has the same root to be empowered. I would translate that differently. Uh, since we use be empowered, be strengthening the Lord, so that you may be empowered to stand. I think it's a better translation because the same roots, the same concept, you're being empowered in the Lord to have the power to stand. That's what Paul is telling us. So we must dress ourselves with God's armor in order to be empowered and strength to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's a key word that Paul is using, to stand. He's going to repeat this word, to stand, to stand. And that's an important word. Some, sometimes people think that the word to stand is just passive. We do nothing. We just need to stand. Jesus already conquered everything. Now our duty is just to stand. But that's a misunderstanding of the, what to stand in battle means. To stand in battle is not just to stand there defensively. When you stand as an army, you are moving forward. You're just standing as a unity, and you keep marching. So, one Greek dictionary says the word histemi was used for soldiers to hold a watch post. Or it could also mean to stand and hold out in a critical position on a battlefield. It does not necessarily imply only defense. For in the scriptures, to stand also applies to, the fo to a forceful stance against one's opponents. So to stand is similar to resist. It's very similar to resist. To stand is basically, and you're going to see even the word, we, we have to stand, histemi, and in the Greek for to resist, antihesmi. So it's very similar, antihesmi, the same root word there. And you see, for example, in James 4, 7, James says, submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then he tells us what to do. Resist him. So there is nothing passive about standing and resisting. Exactly the idea is to be actively opposing rebelling against someone, and we are rebelling against our enemy. And look at the, the enemy here. So now Paul presents us who our enemy is. Let me move forward here. And yes, the schemes of the devil. So he says, but on the whole armor, the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's our enemy, the devil. The devil, Diabolos, which speaks of his slanderous character, or Satan, Satanás, the adversary. And you think about our glorious God, he has different names, right? Doesn't God present himself with different names in the Bible? 
So, for example, you have El Elyon, the God Most High, the God who is in charge of all the nations. You have Yahweh, the God who is present, covenantally present with His people to deliver them. You have Yahweh Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts, one who fights. You have Yahweh Kana, the Lord who is jealous, who is zealous for His glory. You have Jesus, Yahweh saves. You have the Holy Spirit, or another name that we have for the Holy Spirit, Parakletos, the one who comes alongside to strengthen us and to empower us. All the different names express a different aspect, a beautiful a beautiful and glorious aspect of our God. Amen? That's why you have all these names. All these names are painting the, the different aspects and characters and attributes of our God. And the same with Satan. Satan has different names, names that reflect his nasty, heinous, and cruel character. Amen? Well, here are some of his names, and we need to know our adversary, our enemy. So he's called the devil. Diabolos pertains to engagement in slander, slanderous, one who is engaging in slandering others. His major form of attack is through words, slanderous words. Slander means the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. And he attacks, he attacks the character of God, he's a slander. And he attacks the character of God's people too. That's his name, Diabolos, the slanderer. He's Satan, Satan, which means one who opposes, accuser, literally means adversary. And in the New Testament, that's his personal name. He's known, if you're going to get his name, his name is Satan. Or the evil one. He appears as the epitome and the emblem of evil in the scriptures. And what is evil? What is evil? If, you're gonna, if someone asks you, what is evil? How would you define evil? You can define simply as everything that is oppo- the opposite of God. Everything that is the opposite of beautiful, holy, good, right? That would be evil. And he is the evil one. He's the emblem. He's the epitome. He's the heart of evil. That's why he's called the evil one. He's also known as the Leviathan. In Isaiah 27, 1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Uh, this and other texts suggest that this mythical figure represents God's chief opponent among spiritual powers. In the book of Job, Leviathan is presented as God's most formidable, formidable and unequaled enemy, whom he holds in check. And that leads to how the New Testament connects the Leviathan to the dragon. In the New Testament, that's the, the parallel, he's called the dragon. So, for example, in Revelation 20, verse 2, he speaks of the devouring character of Satan. He is described as, uh, or Revelation 12, 3 through 4, he is the dragon, he's red, he's described as the color red. Why? Bloodshed. He loves devouring the blood. And then he's described also with seven heads and ten horns. I like what 
Matthew Emerson writes, he says, in relation to Satan as the dragon, he says, while these images probably allude to Rome as the dragon with seven heads and ten horns, they are also Old Testament images for earthly authority in the kingdoms of the nations. So you remember how in Daniel, especially in Daniel, you have this, the beasts and with different heads representing different nations. The specific number of seven and ten or seventy, if multi- multiplied, uh, may be a reference to the table of nations in Genesis 10. He goes on, he says, The dragon is thus portrayed as the ruler of the powers and principalities and the temporal and rebellious kingdoms of this world, in contrast to Yahweh and his comprehensive and eternal kingdom. Although the dragon is thrown down by the death and resurrection of Jesus, Revelation 12, 1 through 12, he still makes war on the followers of Jesus, primarily through deploying his beast and his false prophets. He's also known as the serpent. Reveals Satan's character as cunning, deceiver. He's deadly, poisonous, and cunning as a serpent. He's known as Beelzebub. Jesus calls him the Beelzebub, the Lord of Heights. Probably related why he's in other places called the king, the king of the kingdom of the air. Beelzebub probably means that Satan is perceived as being in charge of the demons. And that's why he's also called the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the king of the bottomless pit, the ruler of this world. So those are names connected to this idea of Beelzebub, the, the one who is in charge of other demons. He's also called the tempter. Why? Because his schemes by tempting. He's also known as Apollyon or Abaddon. He's compared to a roaring lion. He's ferocious, trying to devour the church. He's also known as the father of lies, the thief, the murderer, and many other names that reveal his evil character. And that's our great enemy that we face. That's important. We must know. We must know his names and know his tactics, his schemes, in order for us to be well protected. And that's what Paul tells us. Look at it. He says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. This great enemy of ours is full of schemes, methodeia. That's where we get method in, in English, methodeia. The Holman Christian Standard Bible has tactics. The Greek, the Greek word implies crafty scheming with the intention or the intent to deceive. It's amazing how this word was outside the military context. This word was used in developing a method of collecting taxes or debts. Huh. Why? Because when you're going to go to collect the taxes, the debt, you, you had to plan. You had to scheme the perfect place, the perfect timing where the person could not hide or come up with an excuse for not paying. So there was the scheming behind. The same word was used earlier by Paul in chapter 4. When Paul says that the reason Jesus gave pastors to the church is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carry about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful... And then he used the method A, schemes. Schemes of man used by Satan. 
to harm and hurt the church. So let me remind you that Satan is not just this maniac enemy who is just shooting arrows up into the air hoping that something will fall in someone. No. No. He has schemes, targets. He plans, he prepares, he studies. The devil attacks by using crafty schemes. Thus, the assaults of the devil will tend to look more like seductions than military offenses. Seduction. Arnold, a commentator, he writes, The idea in Ephesians is that the devil is an intelligent being that carefully strategizes plans against the church, God's plan of redemption and individual believers. And we see in Ephesians 4 that one of the schemes that Satan used is one of his tactics, one of his strategies is using hearts that are full of bitterness and anger. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give Noah opportunity foothold to the devil. So Paul connects right here a bitter, an angry heart with giving a foothold to the devil. You see, a heart that's full of bitterness and anger will be a wonderful palace for Satan to come and take over. Stephen Fowle, in his commentary, he says, Anger cannot and should not be the Christian's constant disposition. Nevertheless, there are times when anger as an emotion simply comes upon us. Other times, anger is the result of a more thoughtful accounting of a situation or a set of actions. In either case, it's not sinful in itself. Anger does, however, provide the environment in which sin can flourish. Moreover, as a state of anger, as a state of anger can provide an occasion for the devil. Then he says, anger is sometimes justified, but it's always disruptive. In that disruption, righteous anger can easily turn into sin. It is an emotion that can open oneself up to great acts of self-sacrifice. Alternatively, it can open one up to all manner of evil. The wise response to anger in 426 is not to let the sun go down on one's anger. The longer anger righteous or otherwise festers within us, the more likely it is to lead us into sin. F.F. Bruce notes how Satan's scheme is his readiness to exploit strained relations and angry feelings between believers so as to damage their personal or corporate welfare and witness. Hmm. I, I have seen many families Individual Christians, churches being devastated by bitterness, by anger. Because Satan comes and creates havoc. I have seen people leaving churches 
people who you believe are sound in doctrine, people who used to enjoy profound teachings, always talking about deep theological issues, and, and suddenly they get bitter, they get angry towards someone, something in the church. And it's amazing. It's amazing how the foothold becomes so massive and infested with demonic activities that the, the people, the family, the individual who once loved sound doctrine, loved heavy preaching, theology, because of that bitterness, that anger, suddenly they're moving, jumping from church to church, churches that don't preach, and suddenly you're wondering, why are they in this church? Why are they doing that? And suddenly they're not even going to church anymore. Why? Satan loves to use bitterness and anger as an occasion to create havoc. A church, a family, and a person full of bitterness and anger is a foothold, or as we say, a beachhead for the armies of Satan to come and take over. The devil's schemes are related to his word. Satan rules through his word. He tries to imitate God. God rules through his word, and Satan also rules through his word. But the problem is the type, the nature of the word. God's word is always true. Satan is always with lies. Half-truths. That's how Satan attacks. He's the tempter. Why? Because he used words to tempt Ideas to tempt us to think that's going to be good. The deceiver, the accuser, the slanderer. And let me tell you that the slander, the lies, the confusion will come from sources and people that you're never expecting. It's his schemes. That's how he acts. So we see, especially his hate towards the truth of the gospel. He hates the gospel. I think about Martin Luther and how much Luther suffered. And Luther was one of those guys who would feel he knew the oppression of satanic forces against him. It said that when he was translating the New Testament, one day he threw the ink that he had against the wall because he truly thought that Satan was right there in that wall tormenting him. And why was Luther so oppressed and, and attacked by Satan? Because he was heading, heading the German Reformation, translating the Bible, standing against satanic forces. And of course, Satan will target. And he will target churches also that are faithful Churches that preach the gospel, churches that love the gospel, churches that live the gospel. And I'll say a church like ours that loves the gospel, preaches the gospel, treasures the gospel of Christ, we will inevitably become a target. And praise the Lord. And that's why we ought to know our enemy. That's why the Lord, in His wisdom, He gives us all that we need to know. That's amazing. We don't need anything else apart from the Scriptures to know about our enemy. People try to create books and they write books about all sorts of things. No, all that we need is right here. The sufficiency of the Scriptures.
All that we need to know about Satan, all that we need to know about our enemy is right here. And we need to know him. You know, some people are going to say, oh, you preach a whole sermon about Satan. Yeah, next Lord's Day we're going to talk more about the satanic schemes. Because we need to know. It's part of the church. God has given us instruction to know our enemy. Amen? But we also need to know not only our enemy, but who is for us. That's the most important thing. Who is for us? Who is fighting on our behalf, on our side? And as we fight our battles, and we will have more nasty battles on our way, we must be mindful how we fight. And we fight knowing that the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? He's on our side. One dictionary says, Most importantly, however, the New Testament teaches us that this being, who has been evil from the beginning, has now been bound and cast out of heaven through the ministry of Jesus. While Satan is still a dangerous enemy, Jesus himself prays for us and has given us the powerful weapons of prayer, faith, and the efficacy of his blood. Satan can still cause physical illness when allowed by God, and persons can be delivered over to him for punishment. Satan will always be under God's control, who will eventually destroy him. So we, yes, we have a cruel, we have a nasty, we have a, a, an evil enemy. But we have a much mightier Savior on our side. Amen? And that's why I love Luther's words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. And we don't fight with fear. We fight with sober-minded sobriety. We know. We know our enemy. But we do not fight in fear. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Amen. Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. You are in charge of all things. And we praise you that you have given us your word to teach us, to instruct us how to fight the battles that we still have until the final day when you come back and bring the glorification, the consummation of all things, Lord. So until then, help us. Help us to be ready. Help us to be strengthened in you and in your might power. And I pray that our church would be alert, sober-minded, resisting this nasty enemy that we have, who is angry because he knows that his time is short. So help us. Help us to be alert as a body. Help us to be putting on Christ Jesus, the full armor, as a church, as a family. And as individuals also, Lord. Help us to be praying for each other. Help us to be helping each other with this full armor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.